Well, this morning, as, we, as you well know, we continue with what I feel the Holy Spirit is giving me for us to know concerning the issues or the significance or the benefit or the blessings that accrue to God and to us in the resurrection. And as I, I said it that way purposefully, because once again, I want to emphasize too often when we look at the word and we look at the cross, especially, and we look at the burial of Jesus and we look at the resurrection, we first think about us, and that's normal and natural. But the spiritual way to understand what is happening is to first look at what these events are to God himself. And so I want to encourage you, as you read your word, not only about the passion and resurrection of Jesus, but as you read your word in any area of your word, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, read it with the primary focus, what does this word have to do with God? What is it about God himself that he is revealing Why is it that he's doing these things, and why is he saying what he's saying? What does all this first and primarily mean to him? Because as that is understood, and to the extent and the depth that that is understood, then we can begin to receive the benefits and what this word of God means to us in a way that accomplishes the work that God desires it to be accomplished because it is the accomplishment of the revelation of himself. So I, I think we're getting this, but I always want to emphasize it because the natural person so typically, we all have to fight this. We so typically think about me first. And about what I'm getting out of it, about what's happening to me and how it affects me. So let's make sure that we are actively asking the Holy Spirit to reorient our understanding, readjust our vision from ourselves to God himself. And then once we see God himself in these things, we're going to be able to see and understand and receive more clearly and more accurately and to a much greater way, what he has for us. Amen. So we're continuing in what is contained in these three words, he is risen. Last week, we discussed six issues that are contained. Now, I know very well that what we're saying is not exhaustive. In other words, that it does not include everything that is contained in he is risen. And you may the Lord may give you one or two issues or items that we did not include, and I would always be glad to hear those. But at least this is where I have, this is where I am in my understanding of this as he gives it. So number seven, he has, he is risen. Again, this is heaven's announcement that it is finished. Remember, where does that, where is that statement? Come on, you should know by now. It is finished. Where is that statement? John 19 verse 30. It is a major statement. 
Every one of us needs to know that John 19.30, Jesus says, it is finished. Everything of the old creation, everything in Adam, everything of the fall, everything has been completed. He is risen has to do with the impact and the result of what has been completed. Everything has been completed, fulfilled. And now he is risen has to do with the impact, the coming or the fruit of that which has been finished. So number seven, as with every work of God, the resurrection of the Son of God is a Trinitarian work. And by the way, I'm putting this section in here last week, uh, this week, because last week one of the members of the church asked me a question about, you said that. Jesus rose, and however I said it, uh, she didn't understand quite what that meant, so I wanted to go into a little more detail this morning. So let's remember this. Once again, God in himself is not divided. God is one in his essence. God is one in his attributes. God is one in his essential nature. And because of this, God cannot be divided. In other words, the Son does these things individually and in himself, but those things are not contained in the Father. So the Son has certain attributes that do not belong to the Father. The Holy Spirit has certain, a certain nature that doesn't belong to the Son. No. Everything of the one being of God is fully possessed by every person or each person of the being of God. We went through this. Remember, we've gone through some Trinitarian thoughts. So that means this, that from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Revelation 22, every single work of God is a Trinitarian work. The difference is, or the distinction is, each person of the Trinity or one person that a trinity in a particular work or in a particular season of work will take the lead. But that does not mean that the other two are not substantively involved. There is impossible, it is impossible for any member of the trinity to do anything at all apart from or unilateral, unilaterally. It is impossible. Everything that God does is an absolute unity, is a one being work. One person of the Trinity taking the lead at a particular time or in a particular instance. That's very important to know because errors and heresy have occurred at this point where folks have said, well, that means that there are three persons, three absolute distinct beings, three gods, or just one God, but he takes a different mold and he assumes a different mold in this one. No, there are three distinct, equal, divine beings, each one of them fully possessing all the attributes of the being of God. The difference is in their roles. Remember, we've talked about roles in the way they're operating in way God um, functions. So, there is no distinction among the three persons of God. Did I, is it this in your notes ontologically? Is that in your notes? No distinction ontologically? Okay. 
There's no, I don't need to, let's not discuss that, what that means. No distinction. This means that the three persons of the one being of God exist absolute in absolute equality and essence of will. That's important to know. Each person of the Godhead is absolutely equal to the other in will, in his will, and in his attributes. However, there is a distinction of roles among the persons of the Godhead. We've seen that. And this distinction has to do with their mutually willing roles. Mutually willing roles. So what the Father wills, the Son also wills, the Holy Spirit also wills. There's not a different will in the Father as there may be in the Son or that there is in the Holy Spirit. There is one will in God. And so... This has to do one will in relation to the redemption of fallen humanity. One will. Now, the reason I'm saying this, it means that the resurrection, as with every work of God, was the work of all three persons of the Trinity, not just one member of the Trinity. So when we're talking about the resurrection of the Son of God as to his human body, right? The resurrection of the Son of God as to his humanity, We're saying this, that the Bible teaches us that all three persons participated in raising this God-man, Jesus Christ, from the dead. So let's talk about that. First, the Father raised Christ from the dead by his own authority. In Acts 2.32, and these are just a few of the statements that are made in the New Testament. In Acts 2.32, Peter is preaching and he says, this Jesus God raised up. So who raised Jesus from the dead? God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Is that a correct statement? Yes, it is. It's a correct statement. But remember, it is not a correct statement to the exclusion of the other two persons of the Trinity. But it is a correct statement. Acts 10.40. Again, God raised him, meaning Jesus, on the third day. Romans 10.9, Paul is writing. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that who? God, the Father, raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 1 Corinthians 6.14. God raised the Lord. Now, when Paul talks about the Lord, he's talking about the Lord Jesus. He's talking about the Lord Jesus. So, first of all, who raised Jesus from the dead? God did. God the Father. Is that correct? So, if I say God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, am I correct? Yes, it is correct. But not to the exclusion of the other two members of the Trinity. But it is not wrong to say God raised Jesus from the dead. So last week when I said God raised Jesus from the dead, the question that came to me was, I thought Jesus raised, uh, no, no, sorry. I said Jesus raised himself from the dead. Someone came to me and said, no, I thought God raised him from the dead. And so I just wanted to bring some clarification to that. Secondly, Christ raised himself by his own authority. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Now, how does God raise Jesus from the dead, but Christ raises Jesus from the dead? You see, we have to be careful not to think along human limitations. And notice how I said this. 
And you'll see why I said it that way. Christ raised himself by his own authority. John 2.19, Jesus answered there. Remember about the temple? It took us all these years, 60 years. To, we're talking about Herod's embellishment of the temple. Remember that? It took all these years to build this temple. And Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days, what? I will raise it up. I will raise it up. More to the point in John 10, 18. Jesus is talking, and he says, I lay it, my life down. I lay my life down on my own accord. In other words, by my own authority, I lay my life down. But what does the Bible say? It says God sacrificed his son. Oh, wait a minute. Who did it, John? Did God do it? Julio? Yes. Remember in Acts chapter 2? By the predetermined plan of God, Jesus was crucified. God crucified his son, sent him to the cross. But here is Jesus is saying what? I am the one who has done this. I lay my life down on my own accord. That means at the cross. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. This charge or this authority, if you would, I have received from my father. And so what we're talking about here is a distinction in roles. The father is understood to be, if you would, the leader of the Trinity. That doesn't mean he's been around longer. It doesn't mean he knows more. It is a functional thing. Ontologically, in other words, as to the persons of the Godhead, as to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, there's absolutely no distinction as to their personhood. Each one possesses the fullness of the deity. Remember, the distinction in the Godhead is as to their function. And so the Father functions as <clears throat> giving forth, you know, the direction. We will. Uh, I want the world to be created. So when you look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, you begin to see, and from verses 3 to 6, it is the Father's will that the creation of humanity and so on and our redemption is set forth. And then from 6 to 12, it is the Son's work that where he comes and to lay himself down for our redemption. And then in verses 13 and 14, it is the Spirit's work who seals us as a result of the finished work of Christ at the cross. All three members of the Trinity are equally involved in every aspect of what God is doing since the creation, except somewhat differently. John eleven twenty five. what does Jesus say? Those famous words, I am the resurrection and the life. And so you see, if Jesus is raised from the dead exclusively by the Father, then Jesus would have said, my Father is the resurrection. But he says, I am the resurrection because I possess in myself the divine power and the divine authority to raise myself from the dead. So is it correct to say Jesus raised himself from the dead? Yes or no? Yes, it is. But not to the exclusion of the other two persons of the Trinity. And then finally... The Holy Spirit raised Christ from the dead by his own authority. Romans 8, 11, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. So what is that saying? 
The Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Now, how many of us know this is confusing? Come on, how many of us know this is confusion? Doesn't it sound like double talk? It sounds like double talk. You see, what happens is human beings do not and cannot create a philosophical system Human beings do not and cannot cannot create a theology that cannot be easily understood and explained. Anything that a human being can create, as at least as far as thoughts are concerned, or anything at all, really, but we're talking about thoughts and concepts. Anything that a person can create, the rest of us can what? At least, hopefully, some of us who are more intelligent some of us can understand. If one person can create a philosophical or theological system, that means that there's going to be somebody else and some other people who are going to be able to understand it clearly and it's going to be able to, you know, be totally comprehended by someone else. So one person's creation can be comprehended by another person. Do we understand that? That is not what's happening with the understanding of the revelation of God's triunity, of the Trinity. In the one being of God, there exists three eternal, equal, distinct, divine beings, divine persons, each one totally possessing the fullness of the deity in himself, but not by himself. How does that make sense? It doesn't make sense. Why doesn't it make sense, Troy? Because it's about God. It doesn't make sense to the natural mind because it's about God. So whenever there's a theological system that can easily be understood. So therefore, what I just said should help you to understand the bases for so many heresies. Well, if Jesus is God and God is God and the Holy Spirit is God, well, that means that there's really just, it means just God is just acting as a father one day, and then he acts like the son another day, and he acts like the Holy Spirit another day. But they're not three distinct persons. It's just one person. That's a way of trying to explain something of infinite understanding with a finite description. That's the basis of so many heresies today, or at least since the beginning. So do we understand it before I proceed to number eight? Who raised Jesus from the dead? The triune God. The Father raised him from the dead according to his own authority. The Son raised him from the dead according to his own authority. Himself from the dead. And the Holy Spirit raised Jesus' body from the dead according to his what? Own authority. Number eight. He is risen. In his resurrection, Christ is announced to be two things. And we're going to talk about one thing today and next week we'll, I think next week, maybe in a week or two, we'll get to the second thing. In the resurrection, Christ is announced to be the foundation and the builder of the new and everlasting house of God, which is the church and is Israel of the Old Testament. In the resurrection, 
And we don't know this until we begin to look at what's happening here. In the resurrection, he is risen, says this. Christ is the foundation of the new creation, of the new house of God. And he's also going to be the builder of the house of God. So let's look at that. First, Christ is the foundation upon which God's living temple, the church, will be built by the Spirit. He is risen, declares that Christ is the long-anticipated cornerstone of the living house of God. Remember in 1 Corinthians 3.11, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. You remember, where have you heard that word cornerstone before? Remember in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 2.6, Behold, and he's quoting from Isaiah 28.16, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So this means that God's spiritual house is to be built upon the foundation of the person and the finished work of Christ alone. He is the one who is the foundation. How many of you remember this building when it was under construction? Do you remember the foundation of this building? Frank, you remember that? I mean, they were laying stuff so deep and so thick. that We all thought, what in the world? Why are they doing that? And so first the foundation is laid. And so in the earthly ministry of Jesus... It is finished means this, that everything has been completed as to the foundational work of the church. Everything has been completed as to the laying down of the foundation, as to, if you would, the setting in of the cornerstone. You remember in those days they would put a stone in a particular location and that would be the cornerstone. And from that they would build the, the rest of the building, you remember? And then upon the whole foundation construct the building. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the one that sets forth the dimensions and the size and et cetera and the strength of the building upon which is going to be built upon him. So this was the consuming zeal, remember, that in that consumed Jesus' life. He had one zeal. His zeal in life was to do the Father's will, right? And why did the Father send Jesus? Why did the Father send Jesus? Do you remember we talked about this? Jesus has one consuming zeal, the Father's glory. But the Father's glory demonstrated where and displayed through whom? A people, the church. In other words, Jesus came to be the one in the earthly ministry to do everything that was necessary to prepare for the building of God's eternal house, God's dwelling with his people. That's God's great and consuming purpose. Remember in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. It's a restatement of that. And so those who are the image of God in the likeness of God are God's people with whom God himself will dwell forever. That's the meaning of Emmanuel. Remember in Isaiah 7, 14, and the Lord will give you a sign. What? A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. And so that's the zeal of God. 
And that's the zeal of the Son of God, to do the Father's will. And so how is the Father's will going to be accomplished? A house must be built. And before a house must be built, the foundation must be set. And so it is finished means I have finished setting or laying, if you would, all the foundation. Everything's been prepared. He is risen means it's all finished. And now the building can begin. So listen to what Jesus is happening here in John chapter 2. Remember, he's entering in Jerusalem and he walks into the temple. Do you remember the scene? And in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. I mean, this had to have been a very harrowing scene. This man coming into the marketplace. This is the Israelite marketplace. This is where they, you know, this is the place of money exchange and commerce, the temple. The Pharisees and the priests were in charge. And here comes this man, Jesus, and he walks in and he looks around. And he's in the court of the Gentiles, which was a huge open area that Herod had built surrounding the temple. And this court of the Gentiles was to be a place of preparation and prayer for all those who were coming to worship God and present their sacrifices to the God who dwelt in this temple. And it was supposed to be a place of worship and, and, and uh, holiness and, and sacredness. And yet it had been turned into, you know, like the French market or something. And Jesus is standing there watching. And what happens? All of a sudden, something began to happen in this man. Something began to rise up in him. He looks around, and all of a sudden, as it were, his eyes became inflamed. Somebody, we're going to have bad weather. Okay, thank you. His eyes became inflamed, and he looks around, and an anger begins to consume him. An anger begins to consume this man and he bends down and he takes a rope or however and begins to tie knots in it and he stands up and he begins to go through that court of the Gentiles raising his voice I'm sure but throwing over the money tables demolishing all the uh the cages where the pigeons and whatever, releasing all these animals, knocking people around, whipping them with the whip. Why? Why? Because you see, when this happened, Jesus says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remember what was written in the psalm, what? Zeal for thy house hath consumed me. What is Jesus' zeal on earth in the first ministry, earthly ministry, and even in the heavenly ministry? To fulfill the purpose of his heavenly father through the construction, first the preparation, and then the construction after the resurrection of the house of God. That's God's zeal. That's God's zeal. And that zeal consumed Jesus. Zeal for thy house, or the house of God, consumed Jesus. Why? Why did it consume Jesus? 
The zeal for God's house consumed Jesus because his zeal was God's zeal for dwelling of his people. Now, I just stop here for a moment. I'm not going to get through today, and it's okay. I want to ask us something. Does this zeal consume us? Or is the church something that we just do and, you know, part of the things that we do in life and one of the activities and we get there when we can and we give when we have some money and, and you know, we, we, we put to, and when it's convenient, when it's not too difficult, we give God some due. Is that zeal? Would you say what I just said is zeal? Or is it just convenience? One of the major problems in the church, not only today, but I'm sure at least since the first century, because those people had a zeal. And those people, I dare say, in China who were being persecuted and put to death today, and in other countries around the world, the African countries and so on, who were undergoing destruction of their bodies and in Afghanistan and wherever else. Those people have a zeal for God's house. Those people have a zeal for God. But what has happened to all of us, and I include myself in this, is that the culture of the West has so permeated us and so polluted us and diluted us of that zeal that now the church has become just one of the things among many that we do. So we do church as long as the saints don't play on Sunday morning and I have tickets. Well, brother, come on, come on. You know, I mean, it's okay. You know God will be okay with that. Because I I can get it online, don't you see? Is that zeal for God's house? I read my Bible when I'm not too tired. Is that zeal for God's house? I give, you know, if I have a little left over, whatever, but I certainly don't give a tithe because that's just, I don't believe in that or whatever. Is that zeal for God's house? When we stand before the Lord of glory himself, when we stand before this man, this glorified man, this God man, when we stand before him as he sits on his great throne, when we stand before him one day, Will, how will he evaluate my zeal and your zeal in relation to his zeal? Why? Because the son's zeal was the father's zeal, is the Holy Spirit's zeal, and is given to us to be now who? Our zeal. So let me encourage you in this. And I encourage myself and I have to remind myself in this. I'm not disassociated from you in this. Pray regularly. Father, not give me your zeal. Because I think we have that by the Spirit. We, don't, we have what God has given to us. But fan and develop in me a zeal for thy house. A zeal for thy house. That means this. Yes, it does. It means that we put the purposes of God as it exists and function in the church first. First. I remember years ago when Mike Indes was the pastor here, and I think this was about 1988, and we, we were board members then. We were called a board of directors. 
And Mike had a revelation from God that that needs to be changed. And we need to become elders, which is a totally different understanding. An elder is one who is given authority and responsibility by God to oversee and, and uh, lead the church and so on. It's a totally different function as a board member who just kind of gives advice and, you know, gives some direction. An elder means that each man who is an elder is personally responsible for absolutely everything that goes on in the church. So Frank and I, I think, are the only two elders in here today. Frank, when you became an elder, that meant that God laid on you. And um, I think you felt that. Because remember, we talked about that. When you become an elder, you're going to feel differently about the church. All of a sudden, Frank has sitting on him a personal responsibility for everything that goes on in the church. Some way, we have to carry it that way. Now, it works out where he has particular responsibilities in areas, and I do. But everything, we have to carry, we carry this church. There's nothing that happens in this church that does not touch us. And if there is something that happens in this church that does not touch us, we, should, we shouldn't be elders, should we? Are you in agreement with this? We shouldn't be elders. And so when he said that, all of a sudden, my wife and I own a printing company. We have a business to run, for goodness sakes. And when Mike said that, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I know it's the voice of the Holy Spirit. This means that New Orleans Envelope and Printing, the company that we had, is second to the church. I never put that. I I didn't have that before like that, Frank. It was the church and my function as a board member was one of the things I did along with my printing. You know, my work, right, Linda? It was one of the things that were added to my plate. It wasn't the thing. It was just another thing that, Adam, that I was doing. Do we get this? I know I'm taking a little time on this, but I think it's important. But all of a sudden, when the Lord said that, my total focus was changed, not by me, but by him. Ronnie, he did this. And he says, if you're going to accept this, that means that New Orleans envelope and printing your company. And you know what a man thinks of his business. Men give themselves to their businesses, ladies, and you know that. It means that that comes second to the church. So that what is happening in the church governs how I do it and when I do it and why I do it at work. Oh, come on, brother. Zeal. This is God's zeal. And I went home and I remember telling Gene this. Remember that? If I accept this, Anna, if I say yes to this, didn't have to. If I say yes to this, I am saying yes to placing the zeal of God and the church of Jesus Christ on my calendar as the umbrella under which everything else functions, not just as one of the things in my life. That's how we all are to be about the church. Is the church the umbrella under which everything of your life functions? Or is it just one of the activities? This is God's seal. The elders of this church didn't create this in order to get your money. So you wonder sometimes why Frank is so absolutely obnoxiously persistent in asking people to come to Alpha. Why? 
He has a zeal for God's church. Is that right? He has a zeal for God's church. Why do we want this room to be filled every Sunday morning? Why? Why? We have a zeal for God's church that nothing and no one should in any way compete. That's how I feel about it. And that's why I am so sweet in getting into people's faces sometimes. And I don't get in the faces nearly enough and as much as I want to. Because on the day of judgment, this is one, maybe the primary purpose and content of the judgment of God in our lives. For how will we function in the new heavens and the new earth and to what extent and to what category, etc. If we don't have it here first, being prepared for there. Seal for thy house. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Seal for God's house. Why did Jesus let himself be beaten half to death? Zeal for the house of God. Why did Jesus allow people to slander him and spit in his face and pull his beard out? Why? Zeal for the house of God. Why did this man live the way he did? Zeal for the house of God. Let's be praying and asking the Holy Spirit to increase what? God's zeal in us for his zeal which consumed the Lord Jesus himself. You see, this is the zeal that was from the beginning. This was the zeal that precipitated these words, let there be light. And with that, the word of God began to create by the Spirit. Remember? Remember that? You read Genesis 1, 1 and 2 and 3? That's the zeal that consumed the eternal Son of God as he began the creation and the Holy Spirit began to implement the creative words of the Logos. That's the zeal. That's the zeal that created humanity. That's the zeal that Slain an animal in the garden instead of slaying Adam and Eve. That's the zeal that moved the Son of God throughout the entire Old Testament toward the cross. That's the zeal that culminates in the cross. And he is risen means that zeal now will be accomplishing and putting into reality in a time frame what was finished in his earthly ministry. So therefore, Jesus, remember he's called the son of David, and I want you to remember that term, the son of David. 
all made all the necessary preparations for the building of the house of God. And they were all finished culminating in the shedding of his blood. He made all the necessary preparations. And those preparations were culminated in the shedding of his blood. And this preparation work, and I'll end with this, is adumbrated. You know what adumbrate means? Is foreshadowed, typified, illustrated. I want you to learn a new word, adumbrate, A-D-U-M-B-R-A-T-E. This work of preparation in his earthly ministry, culminating in the shedding of his blood, was adumbrated. What? Illustrated in the life of King David. And so I want to talk about that. I thought this week we'd get into it, and I should have been not so foolish. But I want to talk about that. Why? Because I want us to see once again how the Old Testament is the type or the illustration of the fullness of the reality that is in Christ. So that Colossians 2.17, again, know this verse. So that in Colossians 2.17, it says Christ is the substance. It means this, that what David illustrated, Christ is the substance of that. What the animal sacrifices illustrated, Christ is the substance. What the temple illustrated, Christ is the substance. May I continue? Do I need to? What the priest illustrated, what? Christ is the substance, right? What the rites and the cleansing and the food rites and the days of obligation illustrated, what? Christ is the substance. Do we understand what we're saying here? 217 of Colossians is an extremely important verse because it says anything and everything of the Old Testament pertaining to the work of God, Christ is the substance. In other words, it all is about the Son of God as the Son of Man, correct? You see, the Bible isn't as confusing as we think it is if we begin to see it comprehensively rather than bits and pieces, Okay, so next week, do you see in there where it says First Chronicles? Do you see that in there? First Chronicles? I begin there with that and then go through. So you have some notes there, but I'll just go ahead next week and continue with this. So thank you so much for being here.